Every critic, every detractor will have to bow down to President Trump. Kneel before Trump! Indeed. Indeed. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. Uh, in Lanka, already lost. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI News Radio. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around planet Earth on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing the Globe. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today, as ever. We've got a lot to get to today, a bunch of stories that uh, that I've been trying to get to all week, uh, some of which I've had to push back due to breaking news. Um, we'll try to get to as many of them today as we can. Uh, first, a, a quick follow-up after yesterday's program. The uh, third night now of protests in Charlotte, North Carolina, was largely peaceful on Thursday night, that following two nights of demonstrations in Charlotte after the police shooting of Keith Lamont Scott that um, at times those protests had turned violent with a large militarized police presence on the streets of Charlotte. There was a uh, a curfew enforced last night as of midnight. Uh, But one of those episodes of violence uh, on Wednesday included the shooting death of a protester, which we discussed on yesterday's program with Linda Flynn, one of the community faith leaders uh, who was just feet away from the man as he was shot in the head. The city of Charlotte had quickly announced that it had been an episode, that shooting had been an episode of civilian-on-civilian gunfire that had fatally wounded the man. But as it turned out, Uh, He hadn't been killed, and he was on life support in critical condition as of yesterday's show. That man now, um, 26-year-old Justin Carr, has now died. He died uh, following uh, the Wednesday night shooting uh, about 24 hours or so later. Linda Flynn and the other faith leaders had questioned the official report that a civilian had been responsible for the shooting. City officials had insisted that Carr was not shot by an officer. But Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Chief Kerr Putney said that the uh, that detectives were reviewing videos to figure out who had fired what uh, what has now been a fatal shot or shots Um Police have now arrested a suspect in what has turned into a fatal shooting there. 
Chief Putney said officers have arrested Raquan Borum and charged him in the death of Justin Carr. Uh, we have already established probable cause and made that arrest, Putney said today, adding that the investigation into the uh, shooting was continuing. Charlotte police now still refuse to release both dash and body cam videos of the original shooting of Keith Scott. However, a video of the shooting captured by Keith Scott's wife, taken by Keith Scott's wife anyway, uh, on uh, cell phone, that video was released today, and you can't see what Scott is holding, at least I wasn't able to, in that video, if anything, uh, in his hand on that video. Police say he was holding a gun. Uh, his family has said he had, was reading a book while he was waiting for his kids to come home from school. But this video uh, is actually, in and of itself, uh, heart-wrenching, uh, with his wife pleading with cops not to shoot him, saying that he doesn't have a gun, and then they shoot him dead anyway. But there, there is a kind of weird moment. Uh, Des, I don't, Desi Doyen, I don't know. Have you been able to look yet at this uh, video? And this, I have, and question? I also thought it remarkable that she said he has a TBI, which uh, train brought Tra- traumatic, uh, traumatic brain, brain in- injury. injury. Yeah, uh, and uh, and they didn't they didn't pay any attention to that. And moments later, he was shot dead. But there's this very weird moment, and I don't know what to make of it yet. Because because I haven't gotten to look into it too much before going to air here. So I'm just going to sort of leave this here for you now. But between the uh, 2 minute and 1 second and 2 minute and 2 seconds, so 201 and 202 of the New York Times version of this video, um, and uh, a gun seems to magically appear all of a sudden on the ground next to one of the one of the cop's feet. It's very bizarre. Uh, And I looked at it and both the New York Times version between uh, 201 and 202 and the NBC version of the video. And in their case, because they didn't add uh, titles to the beginning, in their case, on the NBC version, it's between 143 and 144. This gun just, boom, appearing out of nowhere on the ground next to one of the cops. It's very bizarre, and I don't yet know what to make of it, so I don't want to... I, I don't know. Frankly, uh, there could be an edit in that uh, tape somehow. Um, could be a trick of the light. It could, it be, could a be a of trick things, of the light. So. Uh, but I, uh, you know, and I don't know where the video came from before it was released to the public. My understanding was it came from the wife's attorneys, uh, the family's attorneys. Um, but watch it. And the, the gun suddenly appears on the ground, seemingly at least out of nowhere. Uh, I, you know, could be a cut. I don't know. It doesn't seem like anybody walked over and placed it there. It just seems to sort of suddenly appear on the ground. So we'll keep our eyes on that. Uh, you know, as much as I guess it's possible that someone could have put the gun in there videographically, Uh, It's also possible somebody could have taken it out of the first part but forgot to take it out of the next part. Uh, Or maybe it's a trick of the light and so forth. So I'm putting it out there. New York Times version between 201 and 202. NBC version of the video between 143 and 144. Uh, We'll see what to make of that later. Uh, And that voice, of course, was uh, Desi Doyen. Uh, How are you, Desi Doyen? I'm all right. You've got a Green News News report coming up a little bit later in the show as the United Nations tries to trump-proof, continues to try to trump-proof the Paris Climate Agreement. 
And uh, kind of uh, a big deal, uh, this uh, mem- memorandum from the president uh, to ordering essentially national security agencies to account for climate change impacts and to prepare for climate change. Yep. Uh, so that's coming up as well. We've also got a bunch of uh, voting uh, and voting rights news and an amazing remark, if I can get to it, from libertarian candidate Gary Johnson concerning yeah. concerning global warming. He's got some very interesting ideas. Kind of amazing, actually. Uh, a little bit later, if we have time. Uh, yesterday, we, we quickly covered the comments of the chairperson of Donald Trump's campaign in Mahoning County, Ohio. Uh, she was claiming that racism didn't exist until Barack Obama became president. Those remarks were published by the, uh, by the UK Guardian, who, who interviewed the woman on tape. We now, have, now we've got audio of these remarks from Kathy Miller, the Trump chair in Mahoning County, Ohio. Here they are. I don't think there was any racism until Obama got elected. That We never had problems like this. You know, I, I'm in the real estate industry. There's none. Now, you know, with the people with the guns and shooting up neighborhoods and not being responsible citizens, that's a big change. And I think that's the philosophy that Obama has perpetuated on America. And if you're black and you haven't been successful in the last 50 years, it's your own fault. I think that when we look at the last 50 years, where are we and why? We have three generations of all still having unwed babies, kids that don't go through high school. I mean, when do they take responsibility for how they live? I think it's due time, and I think that's good that Mr. Trump is pointing that out. Yeah. When do they take responsibility for how they live and uh, for not getting shot while they're waiting for their kids to come home from school by the police? Anyway, that's the audio from Kathy Miller, the Trump chair of Mahoning County, Ohio. She has since resigned after... Those remarks became uh, were were published by the uh, by the Guardian. It was kind of amazing, uh, and mean. To, and that wasn't the only one. After we got off air, another comment now came forward. This time from another uh, British outlet. In this case, the BBC. Uh, they hate white people. That's the reason a North Carolina U.S. congressman, who actually represents Sh- Charlotte, the city of Charlotte. Uh, This is the reason that he gave when he was asked by an interviewer on the BBC as to why African-Americans may have a grievance with police in Charlotte. Now, at first, uh, Republican Congressman Robert Pettinger is his name. At first, he tried to blame the social safety net programs that were implemented decades ago for what's going on in Charlotte right now. But when he was pressed, uh, well, here he is, a Republican Congressman Robert Pittenger. Again, whose district includes Charlotte, North Carolina, responding to uh, to this question from the BBC reporter. With with respect, Congressman, I I don't think the people on the streets last night and the night before were protesting against Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, almost half a century old policies. What, 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 What is their grievance in their mind? Well, no, the grievance in their mind is that they the animus, the anger. They hate white people because white people are successful and they're not. Do you get that? They hate white people because white people are successful and they're not. Well, it's well thought out. Yes, you really thought that one through. And of course, it shows other than that, there's, you know, there's no racism in America. Ask Trump's uh, campaign chair in Mahoney County. Right. That racism only started once Obama came in. And I guess uh, Obama made them hate white people. 
uh, and uh, because white people are successful and they're not. That was uh, Congressman Robert Pittenger representing the great city of Charlotte uh, in North Carolina. He later released a statement apologizing and saying that this is uh, that his anguish over the situation in Charlotte led him to give a response that he regretted. Chaotic protests, of course, broke out on Tuesday and Wednesday in his city. Um, the North Carolina uh, Democratic Party released a statement saying that Pittenger's remarks were inexcusable and racist. Speaking of inexcusable and racist, Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, uh, while uh, pretending to try and appeal, I guess, to African-Americans, Donald Trump said that conditions for black Americans right now uh, are worse than they have ever, ever been in this country. President Obama was later asked to respond to those remarks. Here's Donald Trump's comments and Obama's response. African-American communities are absolutely in the worst shape that they've ever been in before, ever, ever, ever. I think even most eight-year-olds will tell you that whole slavery thing wasn't very good for black people. Jim Crow wasn't very good for black people. So there you go. You think? But it's all Obama's all Obama's fault. It didn't exist until he came to office. That whole slavery thing never happened, or at least it wasn't a problem. That whole Jim Crow thing, not a problem. Yeah, it was a problem, and it is still a problem. But never mind that Donald Trump is uh, an ignoramus or a racist or whatever you'd like to describe him as. His his proposed policies are also a disaster. Just so you know, I'm not only picking on him personally, I'm also picking on his disastrous policies if you can figure out what they are. Uh, But if you do figure out what they actually are, if you actually have experts actually analyze those policies as if they are real policies, well, what do we learn? For example, on his health coverage, a new study now finds that uh, 20 million people, 20 million Americans would lose health coverage under Donald Trump's health care plan. A new study that examines major health care proposals from uh, the presidential candidates finds that Donald Trump would cause about 20 million to lose coverage, while Hillary Clinton, according to this study, would provide coverage for an additional 9 million people who are not covered today. The AP reports that the U.S. insurance uh, uninsured rate, I should say, the U.S. uninsured rate stands at a historically low 8.6 percent right now, largely because of uh, President Obama's health care law, which expanded government and private coverage. Trump has uh, said he would repeal Obamacare and he would replace it with a new tax deduction, insurance market changes and Medicare overhaul. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Hillary Clinton says she would increase financial assistance for people with private insurance and expand government coverage as well. So the two approaches, which are would have starkly different results, according to the nonpartisan Commonwealth Fund study that was released today. Economist Sarah Collins, who leads the Commonwealth Fund's work on coverage and access, said that the study found that Trump's replacement plan is not to replace Obamacare. It is not robust enough to make up for the insurance losses from repealing Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. One worrisome finding in the report, according to AP, is that the number of uninsured people in fair or poor health could triple 
under uh, Donald Trump's plan. It would rise from an estimated 2 million people right now under the current laws to between 6 and 7 million people under Donald Trump's approach, depending on which of his policy proposals were analyzed in this study. A prominent Republican expert who reviewed the study for the AP said that the overall conclusion seems to be on target. Douglas Holtz Eakin, president of the American Action Forum, a center-right public policy center, as described by AP, said you could quibble about some of the modeling here, but directionally, I think it's right, he said. The Trump proposals included uh, repealing the Obamacare health law, as well as a host of replacement ideas consisting of new income tax deductions for health insurance, allowing policies to be sold across state lines, turning the Medicaid program for low-income people into a block grant, which would mean limiting federal costs there. The study estimated that Trump's appeal repeal of Obamacare would increase the number of, and now pay attention here, would increase the number of uninsured people from 25 million people currently to 44 and a half million people in 2018. Uh, an increase of 20 million that would reverse the coverage gains that were made under the Obama plan. Taken together, the analysis, they say, uh, estimated that Clinton's proposals would reduce the number of uninsured people in 2018 to just 15, uh, just 16 million, just under 16 million. That translates into a gain of 9 million people with coverage. Not included were Clinton's ideas for allowing middle-aged adults to buy into Medicare if they like and her plan to convince more states to expand Medicaid right now. A lot of states, Republican-run states by and large, have not expanded Medicaid, which would be paid for by the federal government under Obamacare, but the Republican governors there refuse to do so. And if you look at the map of, of, of where the expanded Medicaid did not happen, it looks damn near like the red-blue election map that we see right now uh, as far as who's supporting Clinton, who's supporting Hillary. So you've got all of these folks in this part of the country who continue to vote against their own best interests, including against the right to have medical care under the expansion of, uh, of the Affordable Care Act. And these are the people who are voting for Trump, who will make the situation even worse at least if you believe this uh, nonpartisan Commonwealth Fund study that uh, finds that Trump's plan would reduce health care insurance for 20 million Americans. The uh, health care report from uh, Commonwealth follows another recent study that they did that delved into the candidates' tax proposals. That study by the nonpartisan uh, Committee for uh, Responsible Federal Budget found that Trump's latest tax proposals would increase the federal deficit by $5.3 trillion over the next decade, compared with an increase of $200 billion if Clinton's ideas were enacted. The Trump campaign naturally disputed those findings, and yet there they are, because, of course... Because, of course, they do. They dispute anything that doesn't uh, work out the way they, they like it to be. He will, of course, say anything, of course, to get elected, no matter how much it actually conflicts with facts. 
even facts that are on videotape. Uh, now, the question is, as we're uh, heading into this debate on Monday night, whether either Lester Holt, who is moderating the first presidential debate on Monday, or Hillary Clinton herself, will they be able to correct his lies in real time while everyone is actually watching what will likely be the most watched presidential debate in history a week or so ago matt lauer from nbc was seemed incapable of fact checking uh, trump's lies at a the, what was it called the commander in chief forum yes a town hall situation uh lauer was unable to uh, correct his lie that uh, when trump said that he opposed the iraq war before it became a disaster. No, he didn't. Uh, he was in favor of the war. Uh, he, but Trump has also been telling this lie about Libya. I've been trying to get to this for a couple of days. Uh, this lie about Libya and the Obama administration and Clinton's policies on it back when Muammar Gaddafi was essentially threatening a genocide against his own people during the Arab Spring uprisings. So uh, while the U.S. worked with NATO to take Gaddafi out eventually. Uh, and, you know, we can debate whether that was a good idea or not, but they worked uh, with NATO. They took Gaddafi out. The country has since spiraled into chaos and control by radicals. But And Trump has been critical of Hillary Clinton for using military force in Libya uh, to take out Gaddafi and what happened thereafter. Here's a few examples from the primary debates. Uh, you know this, uh, Trump's position on uh, on Hillary Clinton uh, in, in Libya. We would be so much better off if Gaddafi were in charge right now. Let me ask you about Libya. You've been highly critical of, of Libya and Hillary Clinton. You were also for military action to oust Gaddafi in Libya. You supported that. When you say I supported that, I supported Libya? Yeah, you supported the the intervention in Libya. I did. Where, where do you see that? Uh, I was never for a strong intervention. Again, she made a mistake on Libya. She made a terrible mistake on Libya. So there you go. Uh, Donald Trump in modern times saying that he was never in favor. He was always uh, against intervention in Libya. But back in 2011, Trump had a completely different take on it. And in fact, uh, it's on videotape. And in fact, it did mirror exactly what was eventually done by the Obama-Clinton uh, policy to take out Gaddafi, though they did it along with NATO and without losing any U.S. troops in the attack. So I, I, I believe it was a TPM who, who discovered, was it TPM yes. who discovered this, uh, unearthed this from uh, 2011, February 2011, when Trump was asking for questions from people about stuff, uh, and then he was answering them in videotapes that he would post to Twitter. So here's Trump on video. Remember, he says he was never in favor of intervention in Libya, but here he is on videotape from February of 2011. I can't believe what our country is doing. Gaddafi in Libya is killing thousands of people. Nobody knows how bad it is. And we're sitting around, we have soldiers all over the Middle East, and we're not bringing them in to stop this horrible carnage. And that's what it is. It's a carnage. You talk about all of the things that have happened in history. This could be one of the worst. Now, we should go in, we should stop this guy, which would be very easy and very quick. We could do it surgically, stop him from doing it, and save these lives. This is absolute nuts. We don't want to get involved, and you're going to end up with something like you've never seen before. Now, ultimately, 
The people will appreciate it. They're going to end up taking over the country eventually, but the people will appreciate it, and they should pay us back. But we have to go in to save these lives. These people are being slaughtered like animals. It's horrible what's going on. It has to be stopped. We're making decisions like trade embargoes. What does this have to do with a trade embargo? He's killing people with machine guns in the streets. We should do on a humanitarian basis, immediately go into Libya, knock this guy out very quickly, very surgically, very effectively, and save the lives. After it's all done, we go to the protesters who end up running the country. They're going to like us a lot better than they will if we don't do it. More importantly, we're going to save lives. And we should then say, by the way, from all of your oil, we want reimbursement. Okay. So, you know, those protesters uh, who ended up taking over the country and are now in charge there and uh, at least fighting to be in that civil war, uh, that's ISIS. We did do it surgically. We did it exactly the way Donald Trump actually was calling for there back in 2011, when now he says, what does he say? I was never in favor of Libya, never wanted to go in, never wanted to intervene in Libya. And another thing that he said at that commander in chief forum is, I have great judgment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as long as, you know, you uh, wave a <laughs> hypnotist watch. And, <laughs> right. I have great judgment. Yes, you have great judgment. And, you know, he keeps saying this. I would love to see somebody fact check him on this when he says we should take the oil from Iraq mm-hmm. or take the oil from Libya. That is a direct violation of international law and contravenes the Geneva Convention. Oh, war crimes. Yep. Now you all of a sudden you give a damn about I war know. crimes. Is that what it is? Now, listen, you may or may not like uh, the U.S. Obama Clinton policy as he likes to call it uh, in in response to Gaddafi's genocide uh, at the time. And, and you might not like their our U.S. Uh, militaristic policies thereafter. Um, and I believe Clinton herself has said that the administration made many mistakes there while she was secretary of state, certainly in regard to the attack uh, on the U.S. diplomatic compounds in Benghazi a year or so later. But Donald Trump is just out and out lying about his own position. And it just has not gotten a lot of te- a lot of attention. His uh, lies about Iraq that have now finally gotten some attention, but not about Libya. So I thought I'd bring it to your attention here. So if it comes up on Monday night, you'll know the lie when he repeats it again, if and when Holt or Clinton uh, uh, fail to uh, fact check him on it, if it comes up in that debate. All right, a quick break and we're back. We've got a, a bunch of voting news from across the country, uh, court decisions and whatnot. All of that, the Green News Report, uh, and much more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. You can't count on me like one, two, three, I'll be there. Yeah, I'm here. And I know when I need it, I can Welcome back to the broadcast. 
Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, we'll talk about vote counting in a second and a bunch of uh, voting uh, cases in court. First, Yahoo said on Thursday that at least 500 million of its accounts were hacked in 2014. Uh, a theft that appears to be the world's largest uh, cyber breach by far, according to experts. Here's what's interesting, though. Um, well, it's all interesting, but uh, Reuters notes that although the attack happened in 2014, Yahoo only discovered the incursion after August reports of a separate breach. So just last month, they got a report of a separate breach. But while that report turned out to be false, the investigation by Yahoo turned up that 2014 theft, according to a person familiar with the matter. So this is 2016. If you're not counting, uh, if you're not keeping track at home, it took two years for Yahoo to even notice the largest cyber theft of all time. Five hundred million accounts were breached. It took two years to discover. And yet, when it comes to our voting systems, we're relying on county election officials who are all very nice, I'm sure, uh, to be able to safeguard against uh, manipulation from the outside or even from the inside, which, by the way, is far more likely. Insiders uh, who work for the voting machine companies or who work for the uh, um, the county election officials and, and poll workers who sometimes have access to these machines and so forth. So uh, it's it's amazing that we continue this fiction. We continue to think that everything will somehow be OK, that we'll be able to guard against intrusion, we'll be able to guard against problems. Um, but the fact of the matter is, whether these problems happen or not, we won't know if they actually happened or not. And that's something that I have been warning about for years. The danger here is not so much the, uh, that these machines could be hacked. Yes, that's a danger or manipulated. Yes, that's a danger from insiders and so forth or hackers. But that the public won't know. And if you just look back at the primary elections, you see all of the problems that we still have today concerning the primary and, and supporters of Bernie Sanders who believe that the, the primary was stolen from them on voting machines, among other things. Now, I've looked closely. I have not found any evidence, uh, at least any more evidence that we have in any other election to support that assertion. This idea that uh, it was stolen on voting machines, stolen by the DNC, by Hillary. There, I just, you know, I've looked at the evidence. I've covered this for more than a decade. Not to say it isn't there because the fact of the matter is we can't know. We can't know for certain unless we bother to count paper ballots when we have them. And in cases where we've got uh, touchscreen voting machines, it, we can never know. Never, ever. Those are 100 percent unverifiable if you vote on a, a touchscreen like system. So New York Times is finally, after all of these years, after all of these years calling people like me conspiracy theorists for pointing out this danger and pointing out that uh, it's a, just a grave threat that we've got, a, you know, a larger and larger voting populace who has no confidence in the results at all. They're now starting to notice that that is the real danger. 
Um, David Sanger and Charlie Savage, good reporters, both uh, noted the other day, Russian hackers would not be able to change the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. The nation's most senior intelligence and law enforcement officials have assured Congress and the White House in recent weeks. Now, never mind whether the hackers are Russian or any uh, from anywhere else, including here from the U.S., including the much easier way to manipulate election, which is insiders. Um, but you've got uh, intelligence officials saying that they have assured Congress and the White House that they couldn't be able to change the outcome. They are lying. Anyone can get in and change the outcome. But here we go. Here's my larger point. But disrupting it, they acknowledge, would be far easier to disrupt it, causing doubts in battleground states, prompting challenges to results and creating enough chaos to make Florida's hanging chads seem like a quaint problem from the analog age. By some measures, in fact, the disruption has already begun. Indeed, it has. And that is exactly the point that I've been trying to make for so many years. Whether a system is hacked or not almost doesn't matter in comparison to whether people believe it has been hacked or think that it could be. And that is certainly the case that we have here. I'll also note, by the way, if you read these stories carefully, the White House has declined to name Russia publicly as the chief suspect in a series of recent hacks. Um, they've worded their public warnings carefully and so forth. The greatest danger, says uh, Lisa Monaco, uh, President Obama's domestic security advisor, uh, is from attempts to cause, quote, concern or confusion about the voting system. So why are we opening ourselves up to the possibility of causing concern and confusion about the voting system by using these electronic systems that cannot be made secure? I don't know. You tell me. Handmarked paper ballots publicly counted at the precinct on election night before the ballots are moved anywhere is by far the most accurate and more importantly, uh, the most overseeable way to count an election. That's the gold standard for democracy. Why we don't do that here? We can fight about that another day. But if, you know, these folks who were actually concerned about both results being accurate and about the public's ability to know that they have been accurate, that's what we would be doing in this country. Handmarked paper ballots publicly hand counted like they do in real democracies elsewhere. Yes, yeah, somehow they managed. <laughs> we, we had a, a story uh, last week, the um, the Election Integrity Project, which is a part of University of Sydney and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. They continue to come out with new reports uh, about twice a year, I think, from 2,000 experts who rate the what they call the perception of election integrity in countries around the world. And year after year after year, and this year is no exception, uh, the United States of America comes dead last, is the worst, uh, gets the worst ranking amongst established democracies in uh, for the perception of election integrity. And I would argue that this is one of the reasons. OK, um, voting rights. We're going to have a lot of fights, I suspect, still between now and Election Day. Texas, the state of Texas, does your old home state, who oh I know you're boy, always very proud of. Yes, you're in trouble again. Well, they have appealed 
to the U.S. Supreme Court. This decision uh, that basically uh, softened their photo ID voting restriction, which would have kept hundreds of thousands of uh, already legally registered voters from being able to cast a vote at all this November. Uh, the most conservative appellate court in the land found that law to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act, ordered the state to soften it by allowing uh, people to sign affidavits, attesting to the fact that they had an impediment that did not allow them to get the very narrow type of ID that it's required under the Texas law. So as long as they sign that affidavit and they give some other form of ID, a bank statement, uh, a paycheck stub, etc., then they will be allowed to vote normally this year uh, without challenge. Now, the state of Texas was no sooner had they agreed to this remedy ordered by the federal court, then they immediately broke the promise and they had to be marched back into court last week and ordered once again to uh, to follow the letter of the agreement that they signed with the state to allow people to vote. Um, so that they're hopefully going to be ordered to do. I believe there's still going to be a lot of chaos. But in the meantime, Texas has gone to the Supreme Court to appeal the entire thing. That appeal obviously won't happen, I don't believe, before the election. Uh, but they're on record uh, fighting this tooth and nail to keep voters from voting, despite the fact that even the most conservative court in the land found that this law was racially discriminatory. All right. Moving over to Ohio today, the U.S., uh, the sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that Ohio's reliance on lack of voting activity as a trigger for purging people from the voting rolls, that that violates federal law. This is a two-to-one opinion by a three-judge panel on the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. A federal judge had previously up, upheld Ohio's practice of flagging inactive voters. This was a process that the Ohio's uh, Secretary of State, John Husted, a Republican, he had defended as a way to maintain accurate voting rules. But the ruling on Friday now overturns the lower court uh, and strikes down the state's process, which involves sending notification to inactive voters. According to Cleveland.com, the ACLU of Ohio and others had sued the Secretary of State for how his office purges inactive voters from Ohio's voting rolls. They have argued that Ohio's uh, process was improper because it violates specific provisions in the National Voting Rights Act of 1993 and the Help, American Vote Act, Help America Vote Act of 2002. The law provides that law. Those laws provide states with the means to clear voting rolls of ineligible voters, people who have died or moved, etc., but uh, part and part of that procedure requires a notification process that gives voters a chance to respond to say, no, wait, here, I'm here. I haven't died. I'm still eligible. I'm still right here. But the state of Ohio, uh, they send a notice to voters informing them that their registration may be canceled if they don't take action. They do do that. Um, and a person is allowed to confirm eligibility by res responding to the notice or by voting within a four year period. But one of the triggers for Ohio was if a person had not voted for two years instead of four years. And the plaintiffs argued that was a violation of federal law. This three judge panel has found that it is, in fact, a violation of federal law. 
Uh, I suspect Ohio will appeal it, um, but that's what they've been using to remove people from the voting rolls. So I'm going to urge people once again to check to make sure you're registered, whether you live in Ohio or anywhere else, because you've got folks like Houston who are incredibly aggressive at trying to take people off of the voting rolls. And this was a problem, again, during the primary. A lot of people showed up and were told they weren't registered at all. Well, if it was one of these purges, that could be why. Similarly, Houston has been using uh, a, a, a similar theory to not send absentee ballot requests in the mail to all of uh, Ohio's registered voters, as he had promised in an online ad, the uh, Beacon Journal, uh, the Akron Beacon Journal points out, you've got uh, a smiling Ohio Secretary of State, John Husted, holding up a letter with his name in large print, promising your absentee ballot request form is in the mail. But the Beacon Journal found that for one in seven registered voters in Ohio, this is not true. Husted is not sending out uh, absentee ballot uh, applications to more than one million registered voters who reportedly did not vote in the 2012 or 2014 federal election. But many have actually voted in off year elections uh, or people who are thought to have moved. But they didn't. They were there. Beacon Journal investigation found uh, has found that many have voted as recently as March of this year and have not, in fact, moved. And yet that moved. And yet they haven't received their absentee ballot applications because if you didn't vote in 2012 and you didn't vote in 2014, John Husted is removing you from the voting rolls and he's not sending you an application. And hopefully today's decision uh, in federal court will change that. Uh, in 2012, 1.8 million voters or a third who participated voted early by mailing or handing in their ballots to a county board of elections in the five weeks before the November election. But this year, the state of Ohio has eliminated Golden Week, which allowed you to both register and uh, vote on the same day for a week. So that's gone. The early voting period has been shortened by Republicans. The Supreme Court has allowed them now to do that. But a lot of voters uh, might find they're not on the rolls at all and they are not being sent this uh, this form, an absentee ballot request form in the mail. Um, they, uh, they they find uh, stories of, of people who this has happened to, people who have voted as recently as March in the Democratic primary, and they're not receiving these letters. So, again, check to make sure you are registered and check to make sure that you know how you are registered, what name is on your registration. Because over in Georgia, which is now really another swing state like Ohio. Georgia is uh, quickly becoming a swing state. Georgia's has a strict system for adding new voters to the rolls. Uh, and it, it, this system risks disenfranchising tens of thousands of minorities in the battleground state this fall, at least according to a new lawsuit filed by several voting rights groups. Here's what's going on. Since July of 2013, Georgia has failed to process more than 42,000 voter registration applications because the personal information provided on those applications didn't exactly match Existing information in state-maintained databases, according to the lawyers. Over 86% of those whose applications were not processed, they say, were non-white. 
even though whites have made up nearly half of those who have sought to register during that period. So uh, a dis- once again, disproportionately affecting racial minorities. And what this is about is if, let's say, for example, um, I, uh, my driver's license in the state database is under the name Brad Friedman. But then I go to register and I call myself Bradley Friedman because that's uh, my full name or I use my middle initial instead of my full middle name. Under that, uh, if if uh, the state of California did the same thing that Georgia is now doing, I would not be registered uh, to vote. They wouldn't include my registration. And you wouldn't know that until you showed up and couldn't vote. Well, uh, they were, and uh, let's see, Georgia, like many states across the country, has erected this burdensome and unnecessary optical, uh, obstacle, this according to the uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law. This is one of the groups who had sued. Uh, This penalizes uh, those who are registering to vote because of errors contained in databases maintained by the state. So, in other words, uh, if the state, if I went and actually got my driver's license and I said I'm Bradley Friedman and they put me in there as Bradley and they left out an E or something and then I registered to vote using Bradley, even though it was their mistake... At the uh, at the state, the driver's license bureau, the DMV, you would be punished. I would be punished. And I might not even now they are notifying people, I believe, if there's a problem. But the problem is uh, people can say, oh, OK, well, let me re-register, uh, uh, you know, with with my full name. But if the problem is with the state database, when they go to re-register with their full name, that won't cure the problem. And we are talking about tens of thousands of voters. So this is sort of an emergency lawsuit. It is now uh, uh, being pressed by the uh, Georgia NAACP, Project Vote, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law, uh, and other groups. We'll see if they're able to take action, and we will see if the uh, terrible, terrible Georgia Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, um, if if he follows the court order or if he does uh, like so many of these other Republicans do and continue to violate the law, even when ordered by a court not to do so. The fight to uh, to even cast your vote continues no matter who you are going to vote for this year and no matter who it is, even if it is the worst candidate in the world. We will help fight for that right uh, and your right to know that it was counted and counted accurately. But that's been a long fight, and I suspect it will continue. Let's just hope it's a blowout one way or another this year in every election across America. Oh, okay, a quick break, and we're back with uh, the Green News Report, and hopefully we have time for these remarkable comments from Gary Johnson. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we've got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the Bradcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep the Bradcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. 
That's bradblog.com slash donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. We're melting for Desi Doyen uh, as another heat wave heads into Southern California oh, over the next week. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, very quickly, uh, Des, uh, over the uh, past several months, you have been reporting on the Green News Report on all of the presidential candidates, their position on global warming, including Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party, who his position is what? He's not a denier. I would call him a lukewarmer, which is that, yeah, sure, maybe, maybe humans are causing it, but we really don't need to do anything about it. Okay, well, he admits that uh, in this clip from 2011 that somehow made the rounds that I guess you had missed this yeah. uh, over the past uh, whatever. Uh, here's some rather remarkable comments from Gary Johnson, the Libertarian Party nominee for president uh, from 2011 on uh, uh, global warming. Here, here's first uh, uh, about the sun. Should we take the long-term view when it comes to global warming? I think that we should. And the long-term view is, is that in billions of years, the sun is going to actually grow and encompass the earth, right? So global warming is in our, in our future. <laughs> so that's his idea of a long-term view. What's happening billions of years from now? So, hey, you know, humanity is going to probably go extinct within billions of years from now. So why do why anything? Bother? Why bother? Why bother doing laws? anything? Why have money? Why do anything? Uh, yeah, of course. It's going to be global warming in billions of years when the sun overtakes the earth. Really? Really? Yeah, Gary Johnson, and he's the uh, libertarian uh, pr presidential candidate. All right. And then he made uh, more remarks uh, in this uh, in the same statement. Climate change. Uh, I think, the, I think the world is getting warmer. Uh, I think that it's man-caused. That said, should we uh, be engaged in uh, cap-and-trade uh, taxation? No, I don't think that we should. We should lend certainty uh, to the e energy field. We should be building new coal-fired plants. What? When you look at the amount of money that we're looking to spend on global warming in the trillions and look at the result, I just argue that the result is is completely inconsequential to the money that we, we would end up spending and that we could direct those monies in other ways that would be much more beneficial to a mankind. More beneficial to mankind uh, by building coal plants, by increasing global warming, by making the uh, the planet unlivable? Yeah. Is that what he's sort of saying Yeah, here? he's pretty much saying that, you know, whoa, spending trillions of dollars to, to switch over our whole uh, system to something that is non-polluting and doesn't cause mass extinction. Gosh, that's just too expensive. Uh, uh, well, I guess. I mean, I don't know that we have trillions of dollars, but, uh, you know, facing what scientists will tell you we are facing, what they believe we're facing, what the science, uh, what the science tells us we're facing... And by the way, the scientists are not quite as uh, candid, I find, in public as they are when you talk to them uh, directly or via email. They're freaking out about where we're going. Yes. And uh, the cost to humanity. So never mind the, the cost, uh, you know, to, to move to a renewable uh, non-carbon uh, power system across the globe. Anyway, that's your uh, presidential candidate there, uh, Libertarians. I just wanted to get that out there because, uh, you know, we, I think you had given credit to him for recognizing 
that global warming is real, is man-caused, but that he didn't want to do any, didn't think right. we ought to do anything Which is about essentially it. the same as denial. So we are straightening the record, and uh, the the world, the UN, President Obama, uh, they don't think it's a good idea to ignore all of this. They think it's going to be much more costly if we don't take action now. And that is the uh, topic of several reports today in our latest Green News Report. There is no time to waste. Today will take us one step closer to bringing the Paris Agreement into force this year. Enactment of United Nations landmark climate agreement reaches crucial threshold. White House orders federal agencies to account for climate change in national security planning. Good news and bad news in the Arctic. Uh Plus... If we don't act boldly, the bill that could come due will be mass migrations and cities submerged and nations displaced and food supplies decimated and conflicts born of despair. But other than that... President Obama tells the world to put its money where its mouth is. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Here it is again, another reference to climate change as though it's real and it's destructive. And it's not. It's an absolute hoax. Yes, after 16 straight months of record heat in September of 2016, Rush Limbaugh is still saying that to his suckers and his chumps and his stooges. And this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Rush Limbaugh propaganda and lies aside, a lot of climate change news going on this week. Oh, huge climate change news going on this week. First, the White House on Wednesday released a new presidential memorandum ordering all federal agencies that deal with national security to include the impacts of climate change in all of their plans and policies going forward. Even though it's a hoax? (laughs) Yeah. The release coincided with a new report from the National Intelligence Council, which I identified significant climate change impacts that will challenge U.S. national security at home and abroad, including potentially destabilizing volatile regions over the next 20 years. Total hoax. Meanwhile, it looks like U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's efforts to get the Paris Agreement enacted before the next U.S. president comes into office may be paying off. On Wednesday, the United Nations announced that 60 nations have formally signed on to the historic Paris Agreement, the international accord to the global threat of climate change. That means the pact has met the first of two hurdles required for it to come into force. But the countries represent just 48 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, falling just short of the second threshold, requiring 55 percent of emissions to be covered. At a special ceremony at the U.N. in New York, the secretary general pushed the laggards to move quickly to enact the compact before the end of the year. The remarkable support for this agreement reflects the urgency and magnitude of the challenge. There is no time to waste. The remaining 7% of global emissions needed to meet that second threshold could be achieved by the end of the year with the European Union, but that would be record speed for any international diplomatic compact in history. And remarkably, China has signed on to the Paris Agreement, even though, if you hear Donald Trump tell it, 
They're responsible for the climate change hoax. Go figure. It's important to note that the emissions pledges in the agreement are not yet enough to keep global temperatures within the agreed-upon limit of 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. With that gap in mind, President Obama, in his last address as president to the United Nations General Assembly, called on wealthy nations to put their money where their mouth is and accelerate funding to help developing nations. The Paris Agreement gives us a framework to act, but only if we scale up our ambition. And there must be a sense of urgency about bringing the agreement into force and helping poorer countries leapfrog destructive forms of energy. So for the wealthiest countries, we need to invest in research and provide market incentives to develop new technologies and then make these technologies accessible and affordable for poorer countries. You know, all kidding aside, what's so terrifying about this is that even if everyone enacts this Paris Agreement, it's still according to scientists, won't be enough to save us from where we're going. Also at the United Nations meeting, 81 corporations announced they are committing to cutting their emissions by switching to renewable energy in all of their operations. Signing on to the RE100 program during the UN's Climate Week were Bank of America, Apple, Hewlett-Packard, and General Motors, who joined earlier adopters Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, and Procter & Gamble in pledging to switch to 100% renewable electricity by 2020 and going carbon neutral by 2050. Of course, because they're all in on the hoax. All of this momentum comes not a moment too soon. A new study concludes that global wheat production, one of the world's most important food crops, will likely take a hit from climate change. An international team of researchers concludes that a global temperature increase of one degree Celsius would lead to a decrease of up to six percent in wheat yields worldwide, even as world population increases. And yet August 2016 was almost one degree Celsius warmer than it has ever been. And finally, in the Arctic, summer is over, meaning sea ice has reached its lowest extent of the year. The good news is the sea ice loss this year wasn't a record. Hey, good. Uh, But the bad news is it was the second lowest on record. 2012 remains in the top spot. Not as good. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. There's no time left for you. No time left for us either, so (laughs) i got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it for free at bradblog.com. My thanks as ever to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves and continue to report what what you, well, you won't hear uh, anywhere else on the public airwaves quite often. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, and I think that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I can-